Good morning, everyone. And let's begin class of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you again for an opportunity to study, and we ask that your spirit of truth and love will join us, enlighten us, draw us closer to you, and transform us. pray in your holy name, amen. We're doing lesson six in the quarter of the least of these, ministering to those in need, and the, and the title of six is Worship the Creator. And when you hear Worship the Creator, what, what triggers in your mind Worship the Creator? Well, let me ask you this. What would you say would be the core absolute, definable difference between the creator God and all false gods. I mean, it's in the the word creator, right? Would would you say that the core difference is the Sabbath? No, No, because those who crucified Christ got him off the cross in order to keep the Sabbath. Were they worshiping the true God? They clearly were not. They were killing the true God. So no, it's not the Sabbath. The, the The core difference is that the creator can create. And all false gods cannot. That's the core difference. And when you understand that, reality is created by the creator. Space, time, energy, you know, molecules, matter, life itself built by God. He's the creator. And when you think about that, what kind of laws does reality operate upon? Design laws. Design laws. Laws of physics, law of gravity, laws of thermodynamics, laws of health, law of respiration. All of God's laws are built into the fabric of reality. In harmony with them is how life operates. Breaking them injures and damages those who break them. That's reality. All false gods cannot create reality. Therefore, they cannot create the laws of reality. So they operate on a different system. We call it an imperial system, a rules-over system. They make up rules that are not woven into the fabric of reality. They're just rules. They might be reasonable rules. They might be unreasonable rules, but it doesn't really matter. They're just rules. And then they use their power or authority to coerce or inflict punishments for breaking rules. All false gods do this. You can look for it. When one breaks design law, laws of health, for instance, or God's moral laws, what happens to the person who's breaking those laws? For instance, a person who commits adultery and the spouse who's being cheated upon, the innocent spouse, doesn't know. What's happening to the one who's committing adultery? Are they getting away with it? No. Or something actually happening inside of them? Is their conscience being seared? Uh, their, their character being warped? Are, are they having more fear, fear of being caught? They become more, they become more uh, judgmental of others and critical. In other words, they're being corrupted by this. It's unavoidable. It's design law. You can't have peace, health, happiness outside of God's design law. So if, if someone breaks the design laws of God, what does justice require God to do? Right. Nothing. Set them right. You see, if you had a child who was breaking any design laws, just think about it. They're they're smoking two packs a day. That's the laws of health. They're playing, um, you know, in, in the in the traffic, and they get hit by a car. Laws of physics being broken, breaking up their body. If you're a just parent and do the right thing for that child, what do you try to do for them? Fix it. 
Fix it. Set it right. Heal them. Restore them to harmony with the law. Get them to quit smoking so they're in harmony with the laws of health. Uh, fix the broken bones. Heal the damage done. That's justice. That's the right thing. So that's justification. Doing what's right to set right or put right those who are out of harmony with God's design laws. Now, if you operate on an imperial system, a system of false gods, a system of human governments, when someone breaks an imposed law, you know, in college, you get caught doing 45 in a 30 zone. What does justice require in that system? Inflicting punishment. Okay? So when you understand that, then you can actually begin looking at religions and doctrines. And you can look for this. Are they teaching that justice of God requires him to inflict punishment in order to be just? That's pagan. That's a false system. That's a corruption. That's not the, we're using the word punishment here. We're not using the word discipline. Discipline comes from the root word disciple. It means to teach. Punishment comes from the root word punitive, to exact vengeance upon. Okay? Yeah, yeah. So, yes, exactly. God disciplines those he loves like a parent disciplines. Yes, there's discipline, which will be setting intermediary artificial consequences to protect and educate one, so a parent sets up rules not to play in the street and then disciplines a child with a with some type of consequence to prevent the child from experiencing the real break of the law, which is getting hit by a car. That's loving discipline. God does much of this in Scripture. Many people confuse discipline with punishment. So when one breaks an imposed law, justice requires God to heal and fix. But the, the idea that that God must punish sin, though, this is all false false religions. So one of the founders of the Adventist Church, and and we're going to maybe go into a little bit of the history here, but Adventism was called to pull people out of worshiping imperialistic pagan god constructs and pull people to worship the creator, worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea. It's the core purpose. And it was a group of people from all different denominational backgrounds that came together. Methodists, Baptists, Congregationalists, all came together and said, you know what? God as creator needs to be center of our worship. This was what Adventism was formed upon. So this quote by one of the founders in a book called Prophets and Kings, page 685, says, see if you agree with it. Well, God has desired to teach men that from his own love comes the gift which reconciles them to himself. The archenemy of mankind has endeavored to represent God as one who delights in their destruction. Thus, the sacrifices and the ordinances designed of heaven to reveal divine love have been perverted to serve as means whereby sinners have vainly hoped to propitiate with gifts and good works the wrath of an offended God. You see, pagan systems, imperial systems, require punishment, and someone has to pay the punishment. We have to go to the God and offer them a sacrifice, a payment. Even the sacrifice of a human, innocent, sinless human, will sacrifice that human and offer the God the blood of that sacrifice. Has it ever been taught in Christianity that, in fact, that's what God requires, the offering of a human sacrifice to propitiate his wrath? This is paganism, okay? But... Um, you know, many of the legal theologians in Christianity will make the claim that there's a distinction. They will make the claim that the blood payment of Jesus is a Christian blood payment and not pagan because God himself provided the payment. 
Whereas in the pagan ones, you've got to provide your own payment, you see, and they'll make this distinction. Understand this is a distinction without merit. Because in both accounts, the deity being worshipped is a deity who would inflict punishment upon the worshiper if some payment isn't provided. The source of the payment really doesn't become relevant uh, to the character of the deity who still requires payment. You must pay me a blood sacrifice. If you don't give it to me, I will kill you. The character of the two deities are the same. So the SDA church began as a group of people trying to call the world out of this type of imperialistic worship to worship a God who created reality and whose laws are the laws upon which reality operate. And so Ellen White, one of the founders of the Adventist church, wrote several interesting things. Um, Faith I Live By, she wrote the following. Thousands have a false conception of God and his attributes. They are as verily serving a false god as were the servants of Baal. By doing what? Holding wrong attributes in your mind of who God is. This is false worship. Are we worshiping the true God as he is revealed in his word, in Christ, in nature? Or are we adoring some philosophical idol enshrined in his place? The view we hold about God, my book, The God-Shaped Brain, was all about how your view of God neurobiologically, characterologically changes you. You cannot avoid it. It's the law of worship. By beholding, we become changed. And and this author used the idea of Baal, that this is Baal worship. And the core issue in Baal worship was Baal required payment of some kind. You had to bring an offering or a sacrifice to induce a blessing from the God. Yes? Yes, it's actually Hebrews 9.22. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. So do so this is great. Do we understand it under imperial human law? If we understand the law functions like human law, then sin is a list of demerits, bad stuff we've done, bad behaviors that requires the ruling authority to enforce his law because if we don't enforce the law, there's no justice and the law has no power. And so we have to hold people accountable. And so then somebody has to shed their blood. There has to be some payment. And so our sin can't be forgiven or pardoned or remitted without someone making that payment. And so Jesus shed his blood to make that legal payment so God can erase our sins. This is how it's taught under the imperial model. Under the design law model, it's a little different. Sin isn't a bad deed that you do. It's a condition that you have. Born in sin, conceived in iniquity. How many of you chose to be a sinner? No, it's a condition with which you were born. Now, imagine having leukemia. And you have a healthy brother who is a... Bone marrow donor. Bone marrow, by the way, is a source of blood. And the goal of the treatment, we could say, and and they donate blood for this bone marrow transfusion for you so that the cancer can go into remission. We could say, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of your cancer. Which means what? That the cancer's cancerous condition doesn't remit back to its previously cancer-free design. And so without the shedding of Christ's blood, without his victory and what he achieved at the cross, sinfulness in humankind could not remit back 
to God's ideal as he constructed Adam and Eve in Eden. And that's why Christ became the second Adam, the second head of humanity. He picked up humanity damaged by Adam, and he carried it to completion, perfecting humanity, the sinfulness in humanity remitted by the victory of Christ at the cross. So it's actual fixing the problem, not some legal accounting. Yes? Uh, He did also the two just demands of the law. He had to meet those. One is that we have to be perfect from the time we're born to the time we die. We can't even sin by a thought. Jesus met that uh, that challenge by the law, that demand. That he took our humanity and yet he never sinned by even a thought. The other just demand is that if you sin one sin, the soul that sinneth must die. And Christ also met that demand of the law. So he, in his doing and dying, he satisfied the two just demands of the law. And in doing that, he recreated a brand new humanity. The resurrection is proof of that, because that humanity that came out of the tomb was not the one that died on the cross. It says we are new creations. No, I agree with you completely. I agree with you that the humanity that rose was a cleansed and, re- and renewed humanity that Christ achieved. Brand new humanity. Yep. It wasn't, it wasn't a, a, a 57 Ford that was remodeled with a new paint job on it. It was a brand new humanity. Being- well, I have to I have to clarify what we mean by brand new. It wasn't a brand new creation that he took new dirt and made a new creation. It was it was the humanity that was created in Adam that that God fixed. This was still part of this creation. It was a descendant from the this is what Paul Paul means in Romans when he makes very clear that that Jesus was descended from David. So he had he he partook through Mary Galatians 4:4. 4, 4. Um, he partook of this physical humanity to fix the brokenness, not create a new species. He didn't create a new species. No, it's not a new species, but it's a, it's a new humanity according to Paul's thinking in 2 Corinthians 5, where it says that we are new creatures in Christ. So the Sabbath is not just a sign of, of uh, creation, but it's a recreation in the plan of salvation. That we're new creatures in Christ. Yes, I, I would agree with that completely, but we're still, we're still part of the physiological um, uh, species created in Eden. Well, okay. We're still human. This is the point. Yes, we're still human. Okay? And we're not angelic. We're not species of planets of other um, uh, uh, sinless beings out there. And it's not a new species created in Jesus. It's the human species fixed by Jesus. I haven't read your translation for the Hebrews 9 text in the remedy, but yeah. I'm curious to you to find out what word you use now, because all the modern translations change the word remission to forgive and forgiveness, whereas in the Greek, if you check it, that word can also mean freedom. And when I use the word freedom there, instead of remission or forgive, it makes a whole lot more sense. We're going to go through it in detail here, this quote from Ellen White, and we're going to little sections, and we're going to discuss the implications and see what you think, if you agree, disagree. And it's okay to disagree if you have a different view. So this is uh, starting in Desire of Ages 761. In the opening of the great controversy, Satan declared that the law of God could not be obeyed, that justice was inconsistent with mercy, and that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. And if... God should remit the punishment of sin, he would not be a God of truth and justice. Now I'm going to pause right there. Just in that section, what kind of law is Satan describing God must operate under? This is imperial law. Yeah, a law that created beings can make. See, we can make up laws like that. This is not a law of a creator. It's a system of rules in course of enforcement. 
And this is Satan's lie about God from the inception of the great controversy in heaven. It's the core. And it will be the final issue in the end. Uh, when people, when, when the final issues come to the end, it will be, do you see God as creator and his laws as design laws? Or do you see him as an imperial dictator who is the source of inflicted pain? Going on with the quote, because this, this idea about God's law being imperial and God must inflict punishment comes up over and over again all through the course of human history. God could not be just, Satan urged, and yet show mercy to the sinner. What is the basis of this allegation? This, this allegation that you can't show mercy and be just, the basis or the foundation is, what kind of justice is this describing? See, if you ever watch any of the crime shows on TV, and somebody's family member's been murdered, almost always the district attorney or the investigating police officers will say in these shows, we want to get justice for your deceased loved one. And, 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 and then what are they describing they want to do? Punish the murderer. That is over and over again. And this is Satan's view. Justice is punishing the wrongdoer. Yes. The statement in uh, Why You Sin Permitted in Patriarchs and Prophets, the law there that Satan was fussing against is the law of self-sacrificing love. And uh, his accusation was that God was not self-sacrificing. He doesn't believe in that. And that's what he challenged. And uh, uh, that's the law he's referring to. Uh, and so it was Satan's idea to separate mercy and justice. And so he says you can't be one, or you got to be one or the other. Uh, in the great controversy, God's people delivered. Ellen White makes it clear the mystery of the cross solves every other mystery. There we see mercy and justice blended together. It's not flip sides of, of one accord. So there is an accountability. Satan is held accountable, and he will be punished. And uh, a lot of times when I hear this kind of conversation, it sounds like we can keep on sinning, and there's no uh, accountability for that. It's just, uh, you know, it's a simple matter of being forgiven. So let's, let's pull that idea out and look at it through the two, impo- the two law views. Under the imperial law view, accountability is one day God has a, ju- a judgment seat where he pulls everyone forward and those who haven't accepted the salvation plan through Jesus, does, haven't had their heart renewed, haven't been reborn, aren't a new creature in Jesus, haven't come to love and trust God, then God will use his power to go first to go through the record books because he won't punish more than a person deserves. He'll only punish as much as what's in that book and hasn't been erased, but then he uses his power to inflict punishment because he's going to hold them accountable. This is what often is taught. This is what punishment is coming from God, as if Satan is saying, look guys, there's nothing wrong with sin. Sin doesn't hurt you. We could sin and live forever in sin if we could just get God some anger management classes. If he would just restrain himself and not use his power to hurt us, we can live eternally in sin, because sin is not harmful. God harms you for it. That's this view. And it's a fraud and it's a lie. The truth is, and we're going to get to it in this quote as we unpack this quote. It's very, very clear in the quote. The truth is that the wages of sin is death. 
sin, when full grown, brings forth death, James chapter 1. Those who sow to the carnal nature, from that nature reap destruction. God is the source of life. Those who persist in sin sever themselves from the channel of blessings, and God justly sets them free to reap what they have chosen, and they die. So there is a punishment for sin, no question. Design law model has the punishment, as Scripture teaches, coming from sin. The imposed law model has the punishment coming from God. That's the big difference. Yes? Okay, you had mentioned Hebrews 9.22. In the remedy it says, In fact, the script requires that nearly everything be symbolically cleansed with blood, because without the shedding of blood, there could be no restoration to God's, God's original ideal. Without the death of Christ, we would not know the true loving character of God and could not be restored to God's original ideal for mankind. Yeah, I, I knew it would probably be something like that. So on with this quote. God could not be just, he urged, and yet show mercy to the sinner. This, this idea is based on the idea that God's law functions like human law, that God has to use his power to punish the sin. If he doesn't punish it, then he's not a God of justice. He's a God of mercy. So he's trying to separate the two. But even as a sinner, man was in a different position from that of Satan. Pause. Different position how? Different legal position? A different position in some aspect of reality, some objective reality. Man was different in where they stood after sin than where Lucifer stood after sin. Notice how, continue with the quote, Lucifer in heaven had sinned in the light of God's glory. To him, as to no other created being, was given a revelation of God's love. Understanding the character of God, knowing his goodness, Satan chose to follow his own selfish, independent will. This choice was final. There was no more God could do to save him. Pause. Why? Why couldn't God do more? Was Jesus unwilling to give um, his life for Lucifer? Was Jesus unwilling to pay the legal debt of Lucifer's sin for Lucifer? (coughs) Did God love Lucifer less than he loved human beings? Was God playing favorites? No, none of this is true. It was because Lucifer had destroyed within himself the capacity to respond to love and truth. He had seen, understood, and participated in God's love and rejected it. Thus, he changed himself, hardened his own heart, corrupted his own character. This, again, is design law, how God built reality to work. Just the same way Pharaoh hardened his own heart. When truth is presented to a person or an intelligent being, That being is left free to embrace, love, accept, believe the truth, or deny, distort, and reject the truth. When you reject truth, there's a consequence. You become a little bit hardened, you become a little bit seared, and God in love will bring more truth, like he brought to Pharaoh over and over again. And now you have another opportunity where a conviction of truth comes, and you have to decide, and if you decide to accept the truth, there is a humiliating moment, a moment of humbleness, where one's pride is broken, and one has to acknowledge that they were wrong, and that they had believed lies and promoted lies, and, and that this, in fact, is true. And in that process of the work of the Spirit is bringing change if you humble and accept the truth. But if pride is too big, and we say, no, oh, I wasn't wrong, and this new truth that I see, I'm going to reject and distort it too, then you become more corrupted, and you become more hardened, and you go down this trail. 
This is what Lucifer did. Adam and Eve, however, were deceived to break God's law, and while infected in their being with fear and self-centeredness, they had not rejected truth that would win them to trust in God, win them to repentance, and thus they stood in a different position where truth and love could still restore them. So continuing with the quote, but man was deceived. His mind was darkened by Satan's sophistry, the height and the depth of the love of God he did not know. For him there was hope in a legal payment of an innocent human blood sacrifice. No, there was hope in a knowledge of God's love. By beholding his character, he might be drawn back to God. So what is it that man needs? It's not a legal penalty paid to an angry God. It is a truth that destroys lies and wins us to trust. And in trust, when we trust God again, we open the heart. And when we open the heart, the Spirit comes in and takes the victories of Christ and reproduces them in us. So it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. Continuing with the quote. Through Jesus, God's mercy was manifest to men, but mercy does not set aside justice. And this we get into this question of mercy and justice that was brought up a moment ago. What does this mean? When you hear this language, do you think, okay, justice, how do we know what justice? Justice is simply the process of doing what's right. Well, how do we know what's right? Right is determined or justice determined by the law. Okay, what law? Do we see the law as human law, system of rules, or do we see the law as design law? As mentioned earlier, the law of love. You guys understand the law of love is not simply compassion. It's functional, operational, how God constructed reality to live. All life is built on this principle. And if you break it, you die. The principle of giving, you've heard it before, the law of respiration, every breath you take, you give away carbon dioxide to the plants, and plants give oxygen back to you. But if you transgress the law and tie a plastic bag over your head and selfishly hoard your carbon dioxide to yourself, the wages of that is, this is God's design. This is the law of love built right into reality. So, continuing with the quote, the law reveals the attributes of God. And not a jot or tittle could be changed to meet man in his fallen condition. Why not? For the same reason, the law of respiration cannot be changed to meet a drowning person in their drowning condition. You can't change. You might love your loved one who is drowning under the water. But the law of respiration does not change to meet them there. You have to get the drowning person out from under the water and put them back in harmony with the law. That's how God's reality works. That's what God is working through Christ to do. God did not change his law, but he sacrificed himself in Christ for man's redemption. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, 2 Corinthians 5.19, which means that Christ was carrying out God's purpose to fix what sin did to humanity, set humanity back in harmony with God's law or design. Notice the next description, and this is powerful, of what the law actually requires. The law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character. And this man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. But Christ coming to earth as man lived a holy life, and developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift to all who will receive them. His life stands for the life of men. Thus they have remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, 
Notice, the past sins, that's the, the, the actual behaviors, are remitted through forbearance. The condition of sinfulness is remitted through the shedding of Christ's blood. Through the forbearance of God. More than this, Christ imbues man with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine character. A goodly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. Now notice, this is Christ. This is, this is Christ. As a human, using human abilities, developing a perfect human character, and then healing human beings back to a perfect sinless state. This is literal, it's not metaphorical. We become, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, the righteousness of God. We become it. And continue on with the quote. Thus the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ. And she quotes Romans 3.26 now. God can be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. If you see someone drowning, is it right and just to pull them out of water and to administer CPR? Is that right and just to do? What law are you operating under? Design law. If you want them to live, you must do this. Why? Because that's how life was. That's what's being described here. Christ came and did what the law required in order to reintroduce life into a species that was dead in, in trespass and sin. We were in a terminal condition, out of harmony with how God built life. We were dying, it says in Genesis in the beginning, when you sin, dying you will die. You're slowly dying. There's no life in you left. Christ came to restore life into the species human. That's the right and just thing to do. Continue with the quote. God's love has been expressed in his, in his justice no less than in his mercy. Justice is the foundation of his throne and the fruit of his love. It has been Satan's purpose to divorce mercy from truth and justice. He sought to prove that the righteousness of God's law is an enemy to peace. But Christ shows that in God's plan they are indissolubly joined Together, the one cannot exist without the other. Mercy and truth met together. Righteous and peace kissed each other. Psalms 85.10. Pause. How does Satan attempt to divorce mercy and justice? You're exactly right. And functionally, if we, if we accept the lie that God's law is not design law, he's not creator, he's just like a, any uh, created being, he just makes up rules and enforces them. If we operate in that window or that, that Rubicon... How then does justice and mercy get separated? Because God has a choice to make. He either distributes mercy to the legally guilty, or he distributes legal punishment, just punishment, to the legally guilty. It's either or. Now, it also comes out operationally in the penal legal model of salvation. Because in the penal legal model of salvation, it comes out by separating justice and mercy in the Godhead. Suddenly, we have a merciful Savior who came and gave his life to save you in heaven, acting as your advocate or mediator to plead a judicially just father not to use his power to kill you. Justice in the Father, mercy in the Son. We have a separate Godhead in some views of Christianity. 
In some views of Christianity, it's not only the Father, you've got Mary and all the saints there working on him because he really has to be pled with. Seriously, it's true. And so it comes out in these ideas, these projections, these theologies would teach that we must be protected from the Father with these types of things. Jesus pleads his blood to the Father. Jesus covers us with his righteousness. So when the Father looks at us, he can't see our wickedness because if he did, he would be required by justice to hurt us or punish us. Um, Jesus applies his blood to our record book in heaven. So the Father, when he examines the records, uh, who he has to be just. And so Jesus had to first erase those records. So that's what he's doing in the heavenly sanctuary right now. He's going through those records to erase any record. So when the Father looks in there, he won't have to lash out in justice and punish us. Or Jesus is our heavenly attorney to argue our case before the Father, to protect us from the judgment and punishment of the Father. Or Jesus took our place and was executed by the Father on the cross to pay for our legal debts. You see this division of justice and mercy over and over again on all these imperial ways of interpreting beautiful biblical metaphors. Beautiful biblical metaphor of the covered by the robe of righteousness is not this penal legal thing that I've heard preached from pulpits across the world. And the way they teach it under the imperial model is that when you accept Jesus, he covers you with a robe of righteousness, which becomes a shield of some kind, some some type of shield that... that, uh, A heat shield. It's like lead, okay? It's like lead in an X-ray, and God's X-ray vision cannot see through that lead shield to see the corruption in your character, okay? Uh, This is kind of how it's taught. It's the candy-coated rotten apple theory. You're still rotten in your core, but God can't see the rot because he sees a perfect covering over it. That is fraudulent. In Christ's Object Lessons, page 311, Ellen White says that the robe woven in the loom of heaven has not one thread of human devising. And that when we surrender to Christ, our thoughts are brought into harmony with his thoughts. Our desires are united with his desires. We live his life. This is what it means to be covered by the robe of righteousness. So it's a beautiful metaphor, rightly understood, but it's, and this is why when the father, and she goes, this is why when the father looks upon us, he sees the robe of his son's righteousness because it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. So it's not a covering over of corruption. It's a healing of the brokenness within so that we're new beings. As was said earlier, the old is gone, the new has come. That's the literal reality. Continue on with the quote. By his life and death, Christ proved that God's justice did not destroy his mercy, but that sin could be forgiven and that the law is righteous and can be perfectly obeyed. Satan's charges were refuted. How? What was the just or right thing for God to do when mankind sinned? Rescue. Fix the problem, which was accomplished through Christ, developing a perfect character. We just read it here. If you want a Bible text for what she just described, she expanded on it, but the Bible text is Hebrews 5, 8, 9, which says, speaking of Christ, once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Made perfect? Wasn't he always perfect? No, he was always sinless. Sinlessness... Adam and Eve had prior to taking the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but they were not yet perfect. Bible perfection is about maturity of character. She described he had to develop a perfect character. That's Bible perfection. And once he achieved that perfect, sinless human character, it had to be a human character, by the way, because it was the human species he was saying. He wasn't saving angelic species. And in fact, they're a perfect angelic character. Gabriel would have a perfect angelic character. 
There's perfect divine character. The Godhead has perfect divine character. There are beings we believe on other worlds, we don't know the name of the species, who have been presented with the question, and they chose loyalty to God, settled into the truth, and developed perfect character of their order. But after Adam and Eve sinned, there was no human being with perfect character. Christ came to develop perfect character. Once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. That's what he came to achieve. Yes? So are you saying that we then are being made perfect? Yes, we are being made perfect. So it says, be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And Bible perfection under the penal legal model, and this is what we've been conditioned to see. It frightens people. It terrorizes people. It makes people run away because in the penal legal model, man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. And so the outward appearance is all about the do's and the don'ts, the behaviors, how you how you do things. And so there's a list of all these rules. And we're going to get to that. I'm going to show you how this has corrupted religions, Judaism as well as Christianity, and show you this deep corruption. But but once you get in the rules, you become afraid. I can't do everything right. I can't do but when you understand design law, it's about the condition of the heart, then you can see examples of Bible perfection all through history. Job is perfect and righteous in all his ways. There is no one on the earth like him. Was he sinless? But he was perfect. How? Because he had developed a character that would not waver in its trust in God. That was Bible perfection. His character was settled on God. How about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego faced with threats of death? We know that our God can deliver us from the fire of Nebuchadnezzar, but even if he doesn't, we won't bow. They weren't sinless beings. They were perfect in their trust. Daniel in the lion's den and so forth. Je- uh, Re- uh, Revelation twelve eleven describing the victorious at the end, the, that perfect generation in these words. These are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. It's not about a list of do's and don'ts. It's about you've come to have a heart that you love God and others that you won't betray that trust, that you trust him with your life. That's what this is talking about. Yes? I have a question. Maybe you can help me understand the design model a little further. And it has to do with could Christ have come and met with his disciples and showed love and got them to the point to trust him and got humanity to the point to trust him, but not die. And still got us to that point where we could be transformed into... So what was necessary for our transformation? I guess my question is, did he have to die? So what was necessary? We just read it right here. What was necessary? The law requires righteous or righteous life. This man has not to give. Christ came to earth and developed a perfect character. Now, it says, put a couple verses together. He was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin. That's Hebrews 2. We are tempted when we're dragged away and enticed by our own evil desires. James chapter 1. Are both of those verses true? So Jesus had to experience temptation. And if you notice this, right after his baptism, where he starts his actual ministry, what's the first thing the Holy Spirit does after his baptism? Leads him to the wilderness for a purpose. What purpose? To be tempted. To be tempted. Wait a minute. We pray, Father, lead us not into temptation. We pray, our Father which art in heaven, lead us not into temptation. But here Jesus is immediately led into temptation to confront and be tempted. Why? Because he had a mission. And his mission was to fix the damage Adam inflicted upon the species. And so he's tempted in every way just like us. He's tempted by the devil. Adam and Eve were tempted by the devil. But then in Gethsemane, 
It says in James, we're tempted by our own evil desires in James chapter 1. In Gethsemane, does he have powerful human emotions that, that, that bear upon his humanity? And do those emotions tempt him? What do they tempt him to do? Save himself. And what's the core to sin? Selfishness. And so he's tempted by his own humanity that he assumed took humanity, broken off an atom. He could feel temptation like us. But every time the temptation comes, no one can take my life. I give it freely. He didn't commit suicide. He simply chose not to use power to save self or in self-interest. One of the allegations you brought up earlier was that Satan alleged that God was not selfless, that God was selfish. Jesus is not only saving human species in his humanity, he's also revealing the truth about the Godhead. And he's revealing that God is selfless, and that even though God is all-powerful, and Christ had all power at his disposal, John 13, all power been given to him, but he doesn't use his power to save self. Why did he have to die? Because at any point along death's approach to him, he exercises power to stop it. Who does he save? The only way to destroy the infection of self-centeredness was to die to self, literally. And this is why he prophesied that he would rise again. It's very interesting. He said, I'm going to get your question in just a second. Let me finish this point. He said multiple times to his disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, be persecuted men, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise on the third day. Multiple times he prophesied this, yes or no? But Ellen White says he could not see through the portals of the tomb. How do we understand both of those? By understanding what I'm teaching you, design law. How many of you can predict what will happen if I let go of this? You, you, you feel confident in your prediction. Is that, do you have the gift of prophecy? It's a future event. How can you know this future event if you don't have prophecy? Because you know the law so well, you know exactly what happens when you operate with the law. Jesus knew exactly what happened when he destroyed the infection of fear and selfishness in the humanity, he assumed, and restored the law of God in, because the law of God is the law of life, that he would rise again. So he predicted his resurrection based on his understanding of the completion of his mission, but he was not given a prophetic view to actually see future events. He did not see the future. And that's what he achieved, and that's what's being described here. Yes? So the, the, I love what you're saying, the, the idea there was that Satan did not believe that God was selfless, that he was actually selfish and he was going to expose him. And so when the plan of salvation was revealed to him, he said, he's got this because he will prove to the universe that God is selfish because he is going to save himself. I, I, that, was, that was the core of it. That's the, and you're right. He could have saved himself. He could have jumped off the cross. At any time, he could have stopped this and got out of there. But we can't do that. But Jesus did it. And he couldn't see through the portals of the tomb. She says that he wrung, Satan wrung the heart of Christ with a terrible temptation that his that t- taking on this sin would be an eternal separation. But Christ went through it anyways. It's an interesting statement. Page 49 of Desire of Ages and 131, she says there was a risk of failure. Right. There was a risk of failure. And so God pledged his own life in Hebrews 6. He made an oath that he would uh, pledge his own existence to assure victory. So Ellen also says that uh, in Desire of Ages, I don't have the quote with me, you can look it up, that if Christ would have deviated in the least particular to save self, usually use those words, that Satan would have triumphed and the human race would have been lost. Okay, That was the deal. He had to, as a human, 
See, it says in James 1, God cannot be tempted by evil. God was not tempted in Gethsemane. Jesus' humanity was tempted, and he overcame as a human with human capacities and human abilities. And thus, he demonstrated, multiple things were demonstrated and multiple things were achieved. One of the things he demonstrated, because he was also God, fully God, he demonstrated that God could not be tempted to use power, okay, uh, to say acts in self-interest. But he also demonstrated there's no manufacturer's defect, that God in Eden didn't create Adam and Eve defective in some way. Because here is a human being with human capacities and human abilities living out the law perfectly. Nothing wrong with the way God built Adam and Eve. No manufacturer's defect. Lots of truth. So this is why he had to die. If he didn't die, no uh, cleansed or rebuilt human species. Yes, Linda. And think how reinforced Satan's view was. If you look in Luke 23, as Jesus is there on the cross, the people... Starting with verse 35, the people stood watching and rulers even snared at him. And they said, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he's the Christ of God, the chosen one, the soldiers said, save yourself. One of the criminals said, save yourself and us. And all that through there. Yep, yep. It's over and over again. Exactly. And back to your point a moment ago in Isaiah about Satan thinking that he had God because Satan had, uh, came having rejected the truth. The light of who God was, his sin and the light of God's glory to him as no other created being was given a manifestation of God's love. He rejected that and, and believed the lie that God was selfish. And Isaiah 1 says he thought he would become like God and ascend to the most high. So his view of God was one who ascends up and who takes power. Okay. Selfish. God. That's his view. So yes, he believed his own lies and corrupted his own self. Uh, continuing on with the quote. And then I, I want to get through this. Great discussion. We're going to probably go a little over maybe today because there's a couple really important points after we finish this. But notice, after what we just said, after Christ's victory at the cross, another deception was now to be brought forward. What well, my comment, history now repeats itself. It's the same thing just being repeated over and over again. Another deception held before. Satan declared that mercy destroyed justice, that the death of Christ abrogated the Father's law. What kind of law can be abrogated. Only imperial law. Design law cannot. So the lie that comes along is basically saying God's law is imperial. It's just a system of rules. It's like you make up. And now the death has paid the penalty, the law is done away with. You see, it's the same lie coming back again. Had it been possible, going on with the quote, had it been possible for the law to be changed or abrogated, then Christ need not have died. It was because the law was changeless, because man could be saved only through obedience to its precepts that Jesus was lifted up on the cross. Why? Because the law is the protocol of life, and only in harmony with it is there salvation and healing. Continue on the quote. Yet the very means by which Christ established the law, Satan represents as destroying it. Again, how? Twofold. One, by declaring that the law is not design law, that it is imperial to a system of rules and no longer binding upon us. And then among those who actually claim that the law is still binding, it tricks them into accepting the imposed view of the law and thus teaching that, yes, it's still binding, you've got to keep all Ten Commandments, but God just made it up and he's going to punish you if you break it. This is the corruption that happened But the little horn power wars against the saints. And remember how the war, he wars against the saints? 
This is whether we live in the world, we don't wage wars. The world does. The weapons we use are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. This little horn power wages war by getting us to believe lies about God. And back to Daniel, the issue in the war, seeking to change God's law. You can't change God's law. It's unchangeable. So how do you change it? By changing the way people conceive of it. And think of it. And so Christians came to view God as running the universe no different than a Caesar runs Rome on imperial law. And look at the history of Christianity and how it operates. Yes? Could it be that he's referring to ceremonial law there in that text? In Daniel? Well, where it says the law no longer applies after the death of Christ. That Satan says that the law was uh, changed? No, I don't think he was thinking of ceremonial law there. Because he's speaking of the law of God, and he's been attacking the law of God from the beginning in the beginning in heaven, and there was no ceremonial law, so this has been an attack all along. Okay, well, I just, it made me think of, you know, a lot of Christians today have the view that at the cross, the law was done away with, and it was a ceremonial law, not a moral law. Right, okay. Yeah, but that's not what Satan's attack is, because that would be true. The, 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 the theater was no longer in performance, ceremonial law, after the cross. That would be a true statement, and that wouldn't be a lie. But this was a lie. Another lie came forward. So, yeah, that, that's why it's not applying there. And then here, next, next sentence in the... Here will come the last conflict of the great controversy between Christ and Satan. What's going to be the last conflict? A question over God's law. How do you see it? Where are we in? This is where we are in Christianity today, right now in this church. As well as all of Christianity, we are centering, we are in a war over, do you worship the creator, him who built the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in this? Or are you worshiping an imperial dictator who has a bunch of rules that he must enforce? And thus people will criticize because if you worship the dictator, then God is the source of punishment and he's going to use his power to torture and kill. This is the common view. This is the view of many people who, who are in leadership in this organization. The Adventist Church was called into existence to reject this view, to finish the Reformation. And the Reformation is finished when we call people back to creator worship. Continue on with her view. I'm, I'm going to read both sentences together. Here we come... Here will come the last conflict of the great converse between Christ and Satan. By substituting human law for God's law, Satan will seek to control the world. And what has the Adventist church done? They've reread that by substituting the day you go to church on. That's not what it says. By substituting human law. Human law is imperial. God's law is design. That's the substitution. Men will surely set up their laws to counterwork the laws of God. They will seek to compel the consciences of others. And in their zeal to enforce these laws, they will oppress their fellow men. Again, imperial law. Punish if you don't. Uh, no one can buy or sell, save him as the mark of the beast. The warfare against God's law, which was begun in heaven, will continue till the end of time. Every man will be tested. Obedience or disobedience is the question to be decided by the whole world. All will be called to choose between the law of God and the laws of men. 
Here the dividing line will be drawn. There will be but two classes. Every character will be fully developed. Notice what the issue is. Character. Do you develop character on imperialism so that you will in righteousness and holiness of your mind go out and pass laws and grab a hold of the government, imprison people who don't practice your morals? Or do you develop character, present truth and love, leave other people free? I don't have time for questions. Got to keep going. There will be uh, every character we fully develop, and all will be shown whether they have chosen the side of loyalty or rebellion. The, then the end will come. God will vindicate his law and deliver his people, Satan and all who have joined him. This goes to the question of punishment early on, early on in the class. Satan and all who will join him in the rebellion will be cut off. Sin and sinners will perish root and branch. This is mercy. This is God not using his power to keep people alive in a place and position that would only be torment and torture. He severs them from him, lets them go the path of their own choice. In another place, Ellen White says that the destruction of the wicked is, quote, voluntary with themselves. This is not an act of arbitrary power on the part of God. The rejectors of his mercy reap that which they have sown. God is the fountain of life. And when one chooses the service of sin, they separate themselves from God and cut themselves off from life. God gives them existence for a time that they may develop their character and reveal their principles. This accomplished, they receive the results of their own choice. At the beginning of the, uh, and it says, his very presence to them will be a consuming fire. Remember that fire is the fire you and I live in. It's not combustion. It's the fires of truth and love. We will radiate it ourselves, as Moses' face was doing on the mountain. So this, don't think of this as fire that melts materials or burns up physical matter. It's not what it is. It's the fire that consumes selfishness and lies. It's the fires of truth and love. At the beginning of the controversy, the angels did not understand this. Had Satan and his host been left to reap the results of their sin, they would have perished but it would not have been apparent to the heavenly beings that this was the inevitable result of sin. A doubt of God's goodness would have remained in their minds as an evil seed. Why? Because they would have thought what Christianity teaches today, that God uses his power to kill the wicked. And that is, the, is an evil seed that we need to eliminate from the hearts of people. But not so when the great controversy shall be ended. Then the plan of redemption having been completed, the character of God is revealed to all created intelligences. The precepts of his law are seen to be perfect and immutable. And I've got some other interesting quotes we're going to have to skip um, because I really want to get down to another element. We'll talk about the law of worship. There's Bible quotes that show that uh, if you worship idols, you become like the worthless idols. We've got those in here. It's just a design law and how things work. But then when we get down to, to uh, in Tuesday's lesson, um, when we have a system of religion based on imperialism, we end up making more rules because we have to have definitions of what, what's right and what's not right, uh, what's okay to do on Sabbath, what's not okay to do on Sabbath, and so on. Um, this is out of um, Mounts, Thoughts and Mounts of Blessing 123. The effort to earn salvation by one's own works inevitably leads men to pile up human exactions as a barrier against sin. For seeing that they fail to keep the law, they will devise rules and regulations of, um, of their own to force themselves to obey. All this turns the mind away from God to self. His love dies out of the heart, and with it perishes love for fellow man. And with that in mind, Jesus said in Luke eleven forty six. 
to the experts of the law, the, the Bible teachers of his day. Woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry and you yourselves will not lift a finger to help them. From the book uh, Halakha, which uh, uh, Halakha, the rabbinical idea of law, which is about the Jewish idea of law. I'm going to read you a couple ideas here. So throughout Deuteronomy, the people are employed to follow the mit, mitz, mitzvah, which God has commanded. That is, the whole of God's instructions. In the hands of the rabbis, however, the term gains a more concrete meaning. Mitzvah is, partic- is a particular instance of halakha legal obligation. The rabbis held that the Torah was comprised of 613 individual mitzvah, each with a foundational source of law. We can see the rabbis' halakhic consciousness at work in their analysis of the Torah's first mitzvah. The opening chapter of Genesis says, God blessed Adam and Eve and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. On its face, this instruction does not explain what, if any, specific action is called for. Indeed, it has been reasonably interpreted as a poetic description. The rabbis, however, understood it as a specific mitzvah uh, or law that, ge- uh, that generates a legal duty incumbent upon every individual male, Jew- Jewish male. To satisfy the legal requirements, the Mishnah rules that each male must sire at least two children. The Mishnah then presents a debate. In one view... Two male children are sufficient. In another view, you have to have one male and one female, if, or else you're legally in trouble. The requirements of one male. Having assumed a legal framework, the Talmud, an elaborate commentary on the Mishnah, compiled in the centuries following the Mishnah's dissemination, investigates numerous derivative questions. What happens if the children themselves cannot reproduce? Do they count, or do you have to have more children? What if the child uh, dies? Do you have to have more children? Uh, what if the child is conceived uh, during some uh, uh, inappropriate thing like incest or uh, adultery? Do they count or do they not count? And on and on and on the rules go. Another example, though the um, uh, through the biblical text, another example, though the biblical text prohibits melaka, which is typically translated work or labor on Shabbat, Sabbath. Um, it provides limited guidance as to what exactly the phrase means. The Mishnah, for its part, presents 39 base categories of pro- uh, prohibited, prohibited activity, one of which is writing. Here we learn while, that while a person who writes only one letter on Sabbath is exempt from violating the law, one who writes two letters is liable for violating the law. Use of ink or dye or permanent liquids generates liability, while colored water or etching in the dirt does not. Writing with the hand is a problem. Writing with the foot, mouth, or elbow is not. (laughs) Cases even more unusual than these are also taken under consideration. For example, writing one letter on the ceiling and another on the floor, or two letters on a separate piece of paper that are later put together. In modern era, halakists discuss whether it is permitted to um, piece together a puzzle, on, a, like a jigsaw puzzle, on Sabbath. Potentially problematic since it creates an intelligent picture. Or play Scrabble. Generally, Scrabble's okay, but the deluxe edition of the board has grooves that hold the letters in place more permanently and thereby is a problem of writing. Oh my goodness. Do you see where we go when we get rid of design law? and accept 
the lie that God's law is a system of rules. It never ends, and you dig deeper and deeper holes. Sadly, there are many in the Adventist church who live in their own little mitzvah worlds with their own little list of rules and do's and don'ts, and they're looking on the outward appearance instead of understanding it's always about the heart and being restored to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and neighbor as yourself. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are our creator God who built the universe to operate in harmony with your own nature and you are the source of sustaining life energy to the entire universe to operate in harmony with your character of love. We ask that your spirit of love will come and take the victories of Christ and reproduce it in us so it's no longer we are selfish, fear-based selves running the show, but Jesus in trust and truth and love living within us. We pray in your holy name. Amen.